I hope that we would all consider that when the time comes around later on this year. Anyway, um, Leslie and I have been gone for a few... It feels like I've been gone for like a month, but I can't even remember the last time. What, two weeks ago I was here maybe? I can't remember. I was in... Well, I was here Wednesday. I know that. I mean on a Sunday. I was in Trinidad for 10 days, and then we left to take... Anthony or Brooke to camp. We took someone to camp, and then last week we went to Cincinnati for a funeral, which was really sad, but the brother who passed was just an incredible brother, great inspiration, and an awesome example. But uh, we're, we're back now, and hey, let's, let's rock and roll. Anyway, if you could please turn with me to Acts chapter 14. I, I want to tell you a quick story about a, a guy named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson found a book in a seminary library that talked about a British officer who had gone to Burma uh, right before 1800, so 1795. And as Adoniram read this book about the land of Burma where people worship idols, he felt a, a strange and a fiery excitement almost inside of him. And he thought, man, I'm staring at my future. I need to go preach to the Burmese people. And so on February 18, 1812, shortly after he had been married for only two weeks, Adoniram and his new wife, Anne, they sail away from their friends and their family in America. They take four of their friends with them, and they become, became known as the first American missionaries. This is the early 1800s. And um, while their friends had gone on to India, Adoniram and his wife, Anne, um, followed their hearts to Burma, where they hoped to tell the Burmese people about Jesus. So after they arrived in Burma, Anne and Adoniram, they learned the language of the Burmese people. It took Adoniram years to do it, but he eventually translated the entire Old and New Testaments into the Burmese language. First time it had ever been done. And even though they told the Burmese people over and over and over about Jesus, it took six years before they saw their first convert to Jesus. And so Adoniram and Anne uh, went through many hard times during the next 40 years that they spent in Burma. Uh, the poor food, the unbearable heat, the widespread diseases uh, were common and it made life difficult for them. Two of their children died in the climate there. And both Anne and Adoniram were imprisoned and tortured during the war with Britain. But when Adoniram finally died in 1850, uh, there were 7,000 baptized believers, Hallelujah! 63 different congregations, and 163 missionaries in Burma because of their work. And to this day, over 150 years later, the Burmese translation of the Bible that he translated is still in use in Burma today. So why do I say that story? One, to say that the mission field is hard. It's not easy. But being a Christian and remaining true to our faith is hard and not easy. But if we persevere and remain true to the faith, there will be great rewards in the end. Uh, we've been looking at Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And it began with them being sent out from Antioch by the Holy Spirit himself. 
Uh, they took Barnabas's cousin, John Mark, with them, and they sailed to Barnabas's home country, which is Cyprus. You can see that's the, that's the blue line beginning in Antioch, heading on down to Cyprus. Uh, they preached throughout that island, and as they preached to the proconsul of the island, they faced opposition from Elymas, a Jewish sorcerer who was also known as Bar-Jesus. He was blinded for a time for trying to pull the proconsul from the faith. And from there, they journeyed uh, to Pisidian Antioch. And last week, Matt explained how um, Paul preached a sermon from there, from the Old Testament, to persuade those that were in the Jewish synagogue at the time. Uh, but because of the large crowd that wanted to hear Paul and Barnabas, the Jews grew jealous of Paul and Barnabas. They stirred up persecution for them, and eventually they threw them out of the city. And then as Ricky preached last week, no, two weeks ago, we do begin to see a pattern as Paul and Barnabas go to these different locations and preach the gospel. One, opportunities are presented. Two, the gospel is preached and opposed. Three, the Holy Spirit empowers. And then lastly, there's always victory or success in the end. And so this afternoon, we're going to look at the rest of that first missionary journey as they travel through Iconium, Lystra, and a city called Derby, And then they double back to strengthen the disciples that they had made. And so as they retrace their steps, they encourage the new disciples, the new brothers and sisters to remain true to the faith. And they remind them that we must go through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of God. But God is faithful. And as we commit ourselves to him and place our trust in him, he will protect us. Amen. So the title of the lesson this morning is many hardships to enter. Many hardships to enter. Uh, please pray with me. And as we do, we're going to pray for um, Georgia O's mother. Um, she's in critical care after a fall that broke her ankle. Um, her mother's name is Betty, and she's 93. So Georgia asks that we please pray for her. Let's do that this time. God in heaven, you are an awesome God. You are full of love, full of mercy, and full of power. None of us can match you. None of us can stand next to you, Father. You are holy and awesome in all that you do. We know that your gospel, you want the gospel to ring out and to be preached to every single corner of this planet for every single person to hear about the grace and the love that's been extended through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would give us strength through your Holy Spirit to preach and to teach and to share that gospel of your son, Jesus. Let us be inspired by the examples that we know of, of people that have gone before us, including the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, as we read about them this morning. And Father, we also want to lift up Georgia's mother, Betty Shilk, who is in critical care. Father, we just pray that you would restore her ankle to health. We pray that you would restore her to health. We pray that you would guide the doctors their hands, their minds, the wisdom that they have with any medication that might be being prescribed or any kind of prescriptive care uh, that Betty needs at this point in her life. And also let her know that there are people who are praying for her, that she has a daughter at least that loves her and is also praying for her and um, help her to find comfort in that. Father, we thank you for this time to look into your word. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 14. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning, but we're just going to go through section by section. So beginning in verse one, the Bible says at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. 
But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Jews and Gentiles, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Um, So this morning we're going to try to see what we can learn from um, these last locations that Luke writes about. Lyconia, the the Lyconian cities of Lystra, Derbe, and then um, obviously here in Iconium as well. Um, He only devotes one sentence actually to Derby in verse 21, so we won't say much about Derby, but uh, we are going to close out with some thoughts from the strengthening visits that they made to the newly planted churches. So point number one this morning is simply division in Iconium. Division in Iconium. Um, Iconium, like Pisidian Antioch, was a leading city of the area during that time. There were Jews there because Paul and Barnabas made a beeline for the synagogue when they first got there, and that was typically their pattern. And so initially, there was a great reception amongst the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles of the message because the Bible says that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But as the pattern goes, there was opposition from the Jews who refused to believe, and the resistance wasn't... So bad because Paul and Barnabas stay on for a considerable time and they preach the word of God boldly. And they they preach this message of grace, which the Jews needed to hear, that we all need to hear, right? A message of grace, uh, a grace that's a message that um, a a punishment that we deserve, uh, but it's been removed from us. And an undeserved righteousness that's been given to us through Jesus Christ. And here in verse 3 it says, So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And so here we see again, the main reason for miracles in the new covenant is a confirmation of the message. It's not to um, dazzle people. It's not to get people to think that, 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 that the apostles or whomever was performing the miracle was so great. That the purpose of the miracles was not to make money. It was during a time and a place where there was very little to verify the spoken word. And so God did miracles to show that the word spoken by the apostles was true. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ ended up Dividing the city as it does to uh, many people. Some were with the Jews. Others were with the apostles. And notice Luke's usage of the word apostle here in verse 4. It says the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews. Others with the apostles. The only two people that were there were Paul and Barnabas. Paul was an apostle. We know Barnabas was not one of the twelve. But Luke uses this word apostle to refer to Barnabas because the word apostle means simply sent one. And so the term is actually broader than just the 12 apostles that Jesus chose. But division is a feature of the gospel. In one sense, it unifies man with God, right? But at the same time, the gospel can divide 
man for man. If one man is on the side of Jesus and another is not on the side of Jesus. Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Wow. Through the gospel, Jesus calls people to decisions. We will either be for the gospel or we will be against the gospel. Neutrality is not possible. There is no middle ground when you're talking about Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ. And obviously us here, the majority of us are part of the church and we have decided to stand for Jesus and the gospel. Amen. We've made our decision. But do we bring the gospel in a way that results in division? In our pluralistic, politically correct, relativistic, too polite to offend society, it's easy for us to present Jesus as, you know, a personal hobby, you know, that, that other people are more than welcome to participate in if they'd like to. Versus someone that our friends, family, and neighbors must decide for or against. We cannot give in to the spirit of our culture. We've got to love people deeply enough to push the envelope with them. And I'm not saying that we've got to push the envelope until someone gets mad. That's not the goal. Like, I don't wake up in the morning and say, I just can't wait to make somebody mad today. That's not the goal. That's not the point. But we do have to push the envelope until the truth is clear. And that many times will end up making people mad, unfortunately. And so if you're a guest this afternoon, where do you stand? You are either for Jesus this afternoon or you are against Jesus this afternoon. Apathy, indifference. Half-heartedness, I'll get to it later, attitudes are opposition to Jesus. Because you may be thinking, well, I don't go at home and I'm not having seances and lighting candles to crazy idols and worshiping Satan. So therefore, I'm not in opposition to Jesus. Jesus says, really, the only thing that shows that you're for him is saying Jesus is Lord. Anything less than that is opposition to Jesus Christ. And so if we're in a state of, well, you know, I don't know, I just don't really think about it a whole lot, or I don't want to think about it a whole lot, that apathy and that indifference is opposition to Jesus. You may be feeling temporary feelings of satisfaction and pleasure right now, but the world's satisfaction and pleasure doesn't last. You, you know that. We know that. It doesn't last. Next meet, week, next month, you'll need the next thing to make you happy. And even more important than that, the world's pleasures don't take away sin. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And so the only way for us to be for him and to receive his amazing grace is to make him your Lord and to follow him. Jesus says his burden is easy. His yoke is light. But I know that following Jesus is not the easiest thing to do. It's quite hard, actually. 
But I do know it's much easier and it's far more satisfying than what I used to do in the world. That's for sure. It's more satisfying than that spinning hamster wheel that we're on, right? Over and over and over, constantly looking for the next thing to give us satisfaction or the next thing to give us love. We're always searching and never finding, right? And so if you want to be for him, sit down. Open the scriptures with someone. Let them teach you what following Jesus really looks like. Amen? Because the gospel does bring division. Point two, pagan worship in Lystra. Verse eight, in Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their way, yet he's not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Wow. Wow. And so because of this conflict in, in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas learn about a plan to have them stoned. They leave. They go to this neighboring region of Lyconia is the name of the region. And uh, to, to two cities that were in that region, Lystra and Derby. And we notice immediately that this must have been Gentile dominated territory because Paul and Barnabas don't make their typical beeline to the Jewish synagogue. Right. There must have been some Jews in this city, though, because we know that this is where Timothy was from, Lystra. And we know that his mother and his grandmother were Jews there who had gotten converted. Well, you can read about that in 2 Timothy. So they were probably all early converts here, but no synagogue means that there probably were not 10 Jewish men. You needed 10 Jewish men in order to form a synagogue. So there were Jews there, just not 10 Jewish men who had formed a synagogue. And so as Paul and Barnabas come into Lystra... They don't go to the synagogue. Instead, it sounds like Paul is doing some kind of open air street preaching or something because this lame man in verse nine, it says he listened to Paul as he was speaking. And so Paul was out there preaching and uh, like Peter and like Jesus, Paul heals this lame man. He, he, He jumps up onto his feet for the first time in his life and he begins to walk. In this pagan town, they worship these um, mythological Greek gods. And they believe that Paul and Barnabas are two of these Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, who had come down in human form. 
there's a, um, a really long Latin poem by this um, Roman poet named Ovid. Um, it's titled Metamorphoses, and it describes the history of the world, um, and it ends with Julius Caesar being crowned as the, the deity of the Roman Empire. But in this poem, there's a legend that Zeus and Hermes had visited the towns and villages of Lyconia in human form. Um, but they did not receive any hospitality. So they go from house to house. They're knocking on people's doors saying, hey, let us in, feed us. Nobody lets them in except for this elderly, poor couple who eventually let them into their home and they fed them. Once they're there, the gods reveal who they are. Hey, we're really Zeus and Hermes. The people are like, oh, I can't believe that Zeus and Hermes are here. And they say, basically, you're okay. You're safe because you let us in, but we're going to destroy the rest of the town. And so the legend or the myth goes. The people of Lyconia would have been familiar with this myth, familiar with this legend. And so as Paul and Barnabas come and perform this amazing miracle, they said, we are not going to let Zeus and Hermes go unworshipped this time. We're going to be sure that we welcome these guys in and we treat them the way that they're supposed to be treated. And so that's kind of the, the, the background, the genesis or their motivation for why they did what they did. And so in Greek mythology, Zeus is the king of the gods. And Hermes, amongst other things, if you study Greek mythology, you'll find that all these gods have all these different traits and characteristics, and different people say different things about them. It's really confusing. But anyway, Hermes, amongst other things, is a messenger of sorts. He's a, he's a communicator. And so Zeus was normally shown as a gray-haired, kind of an older man. Hermes was normally shown as a younger one who spoke these messages. And so they equated Paul with Hermes because Paul was the chief speaker. Zeus with Barnabas because he didn't speak as much. And Barnabas, more than likely, was a little bit older than Paul. And maybe he had some gray. And so that's why they put Zeus and Hermes with Paul and Barnabas in the way that they did. Anyway, um, once again... Luke is pro-proven incredibly accurate in his recording of history because there's two ancient inscriptions that were discovered in the early 1900s in modern-day Lystra that testify to the worship of Zeus and Hermes in that city. One of the inscriptions um, refers to the priests of Zeus, and the other inscription mentions Hermes, most great, and Zeus, the sun god. This is in... Lystra. So, anyway, uh, the, the, the Lyconians try to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas are humble men. They don't accept the sacrifices of these people. And they reject it. And when Paul starts to speak to the crowd, um, notice in his, in his uh, speech, if that's what you want to call it, beginning in verse 15, where he says, friends, why are you doing this? Notice that there's no um, kind of recounting of Jewish history, right? Notice that there's no Old Testament references like he did in Pisidian Antioch, right? In, in Acts chapter 13, there's this long thing that Paul goes through about Abraham and God did this and he raised up Jesus and David and he begins to quote from the Psalms and because he's teaching and preaching to a Jewish audience, here in Lyconia, they were just straight out pagan, Gentile, like, who is God? We don't know. Just give us some Greek gods. 
anything, right? And so Paul, he doesn't appeal to them from the basis of the scripture and Jewish tradition and Old Testament history. That meant nothing to them. Instead, Paul appeals on the basis of nature. First, he makes it clear that he and Barnabas are nothing special, only humans like them. He appeals to them on the basis of nature and the creation to turn them to the living God. And he says, um, whew, sorry, okay, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He talks about the testimony of God or how God has revealed himself through the creation. Read that. I'm sorry. I'm losing my place here. Sorry. Um, Yes. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things. That's that's not the part. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons because they would have thought all of their mythological gods did that, right? He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. He's defining who God is for them based on nature. There is no mention of Jesus in here. At least, not yet. Either Paul didn't plan on mentioning Jesus, or he just wanted them to get their heads on straight about Yahweh, about the one God, right? And then perhaps he was going to get to Jesus later. Maybe he got interrupted by everyone getting upset with him. He didn't get that far. I don't know what happened. But it is interesting that Jesus isn't even mentioned. You know, when we teach others, we've got to learn to to tailor the message in accordance with the person or the people that we're speaking to. It's not very effective to quote Bible references to an atheist or to an agnostic. They just have no kind of grasp, idea, concept of that. And I'm speaking from personal experience because I used to be an atheist. I knew nothing about the Bible. I cared nothing about the Bible. And if you would have spoken to me about the Bible, I would say, why are you talking to me from your Bible about your Bible? Talk to me from some other place about your Bible. The the atheist or the agnostic's question is not what does the Bible say, which is what many times the question we're trying to answer, what the Bible says, what the Bible says. The atheist or the agnostic's question is, is there a God? If so, who is he? Explain him to me. And so we we have to back up in a sense. And the, the visible world or the creation is an excellent place to start. How did the world get to be the way that it is? How is it so ordered? How is it so elegant in its design? How does the rain know when to fall? This all points to an intelligent creator, an intelligent designer, just like an, an iPhone. This is an iPhone. Is this an iPhone? This is an iPhone. Yeah. This is an older iPhone. <laughs> Sorry, whoever owns this iPhone. Jackie, that's your iPhone. Sorry. <laughs> Even something as complex as an iPhone does not just on its own appear over thousands and thousands of years, okay? I mean, we can sit there and we can look at some dirt for a thousand or two thousand or twenty thousand or fifty thousand years, 
at the end of the 50,000 years, we're not going to just see, oh, there's an iPhone there. Do you understand that? Like, complex things require complex minds or intelligence to put those things together. And so anything that is complex reflects something that is of a higher intelligence than the thing itself. Does that make sense? Somebody or something far more intelligent created life, time, matter, the universe, every animal, every insect, every blade of grass, every leaf on a tree. It does not just happen. And that someone is God. Not only is he intelligent and powerful, but he is a person and he has a personality. And in the same way that all humans experience the common emotions of love, fear, anger, jealousy, joy, right? How is that if everything is random? That's the thing that got me. I was in college my senior year. I'm walking across the parking lot and I'm just kind of, I'm, I was constantly debating and tossing and turning these things in my mind. And I just said, you know what? If everything is random, how come we all experience common emotions and feelings? Why don't we experience random emotions and feelings? Like when I walk up and I just sock somebody in the lip, why don't they just start busting out laughing? That would be random, wouldn't it? But it's quite common that when you sock somebody in the lip, they get mad. Am I right? And I just thought, where does that come from? Surely that can't be random. And so that's what convinced me, quite honestly, was was the way that all human beings experience common emotions. And so a powerful and a loving and a personal God who made us, made me, has filled our hearts with joy, verse 17. That's what Paul is trying to tell them. The reason why you feel joy is because God put that there. It wasn't Zeus. It wasn't Hermes or any of the other Aphrodite or any of the other ones that were there. Men did not create joy. It doesn't just happen because frogs jump out of slime and become squirrels and become horses and eventually become men that walk on the earth. God has done that. He's placed that into our lives. And so we've got to meet people where they are. And use the evidence of the scriptures when necessary, but also use the evidence of creation for those that don't know or don't care about the scriptures. There's plenty of evidence for a loving, all-powerful God, even without using the Bible. And so once someone gets the, the, the Lord correct, right? What does Hebrews 11 say? That without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? Once someone gets the Lord right, then Jesus follows from there. Another thing about Paul's speech here in verse 15, he says, we too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, he's got a whole village of people that are coming like with whatever sacrifices they had, wreaths that they were going to put around their necks. And, hey, here's like my best bull. And we're like trying to bow down to you and pray to you. And they're like, whoa, 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 hold up. Stop, guys. And he says, all this stuff is worthless. <laughs> worthless? 
I've been doing this my whole life. You don't know where you at, Paul. How are you going to call what I'm doing worthless? But he did. Paul was very clear. And sometimes you have to go beyond just telling people what you believe is right. And you have to go to the next level and tell people they're wrong. And what they believe isn't true. Now, I know that that isn't very politically correct. Who made me the judge of truth and falsehood? And what's true for you might not be true for me. So who can, you, who can say, right? I told this story before about doing a funeral for a brother in Trinidad who had been converted from Hinduism to, obviously, Christianity. The funeral was all Hindus and a few brothers and sisters that were from the church as well. And I prayed beforehand about what I should say and how far I should go because I knew that I was going to be preaching to a 95% Hindu audience and I wanted to represent Jesus. I wanted, and I knew that Steve loved his family and Steve, had, that's the name of the brother, that he had reached out to his family as well. And I knew that most of them believed that Jesus was a God among the literally thousands of gods that are in the Hindu religion. I could have just preached Jesus and let him stand on his own and let people make a decision. But this verse where Paul calls uh, what they were doing worthless things, this verse helped me to see that sometimes we not only have to lift up Jesus, but we also have to disqualify false gods as well. And so this verse emboldened me and I preached by name that Ram, that Krishna, that Vishnu were not gods. I preached that Hanuman and Lakshmi were not gods. And I was severely criticized. My life was threatened while we were there. That day by someone who had a gun in the crowd. And, but I believed that I had to make a clear distinction that Jesus is not just a way amongst ways but that he was the only way and therefore all other ways were disqualified and worthless. Just like Paul said. And so we have to take more and more stands like this in our relativistic culture in order to advance the gospel. We're not going to be able to advance the gospel only talking about Jesus and how great he is. And again, I'm not saying that the goal is to go out and make somebody angry. I'm just saying that when the time and the place presents itself, we can't hold back. And we've got to gently, lovingly, firmly, and clearly explain that whatever that other teaching is, that other road that's supposed to get to the top of the mountain, and when we get there, we're all going to realize, hey, we all actually believed in the same thing. No, no, no. We're going to have to say, listen, you know what? There's only one way up this mountain. And that's through Jesus Christ. Are you with me? But as clear as Paul made it, his, his, words, uh, his words still barely uh, kept the crowds from sacrificing to them anyway. On top of that, the Jews from Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium are, are, are tracking him. They're like hunting this man. They stir up the crowd against him. They stone Paul. Notice... Not Barnabas, because Barnabas didn't speak. 
It's the one who talks is the one who dies, okay? <laughs> they stone Paul, not Barnabas, so bad that they think that he's dead. And they drag him out of the city. The disciples gather around him. I assume they pray for him. And he gets up and he goes right back into the city again. And then the next day he travels. Derby was about 30 miles away. The next day he gets up and he travels 30 miles to Derby. What kind of spirit-filled determination is that? That is crazy. Last point. Remain true to the faith. Remain true to the faith. Verse 21. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. And with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia. And when they had reached the, preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time. With the disciples. And so verse 21 is where we get our one sentence describing what happened while they were in Derby. They preached the gospel, they won a large number of disciples. Amen. But then in, instead of going through the um, Cilician, there, there was a, a mountain pass. Can you go back like three slides to the map? Yes. So you see where Derby is, and then you see. Um, um, at the bottom of the blue, I guess, where Derby is, then the purple kicks in where Cilicia is. Uh, there's a mountain range that's there. And you see how they made this loop, right? They, they could have um, gone through what was known as the Cilician Gates, through that mountain pass from Derby to where Paul was from, Tarsus, and then kept going right on around the coast back to Antioch, is what they could have done. That would have been the easiest thing to do. But instead, they double back and they go back to Lystra, back to Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch, Italia, on back around again, and then they sail back to Antioch again. Why did they do that? They did it because they loved their brothers and sisters, and they did it because they had just planted these new churches with all these new Christians there that really didn't know what they were doing at that point because they'd all been converted, not from Judaism to Christianity, but from just Gentile paganism to Christianity. You see what I'm saying? And so they go back, they strengthen the disciples, and they encourage them to remain true to the faith. And as they make their rounds and they get everyone together in these different churches, all of the now young Christians, and I want to say thanks to Lavelle and Imogen for organizing our Young Christians Fellowship a couple weeks ago. Thank you very much. You guys did a very good job. We appreciate that. But what was their message? When they pulled all of the, the now young Christians together, what was their central thought? It was, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Welcome to the kingdom, guys. <laughs> right? Young Christians, it is better than the world. But it ain't easy. 
It is not easy. You've got to know that up, you got to know this up front because Satan is going to use the misguided impression that the church is perfect. He's going to use that against you to try to discourage you when your expectations aren't met. They thought life was going to be smooth from here on, but Paul wanted them to know, no, it's actually going to be a bumpy ride. Young Christians, you will get discouraged. You will grow disoriented. You will have to wrestle in prayer and Bible study with confusing issues of doctrine to gain your own convictions, not Tony's convictions. You will be hurt by brothers and sisters. You will be tempted to sin. You will see hypocrisy in the church. Models, methods, strategies, practices, and techniques will change over time. Good friends will leave the church. And if you do it right, you will be persecuted. We must go through many hardships to enter. But persevere to the end. Do not quit. Remain true to the faith and you'll receive a crown of glory in the end. Amen. Our trust has to be in the Lord. Not in church drama. Not in church dogma. Not in our personal circumstances. Look at what Paul and Barnabas did in verse 23. It says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord and whom they put their trust. And then what did Paul and Barnabas do? They left. They left. Who are these elders they appointed? How did they get appointed so fast? They were probably older men of Jewish background who had been converted. And Paul and Barnabas knew the power and the importance of prayer and fasting. So they did that with these types of decisions. So they committed these new elders to the Lord. And Paul and Barnabas said, we got to go. We got to go home. I'm not saying that we should um, haphazardly or randomly or hurriedly appoint elders. But we do have to trust God with our spiritual safety. Paul and Barnabas couldn't stick around and nurture and guide and counsel and protect each and every disciple. And they weren't going to let the mission be hindered by the abundant pastoral concerns that are in a new fledgling church. They trusted God. And so they appointed elders and they committed them to the Lord. And they made their way back to Syrian Antioch where they had come from. So despite the many hardships they faced... While they were out, they gathered the church. Now when they were back in Syrian Antioch, they gathered the church together and they reported all that God had done. How he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. It was hard, but it was successful and they shared the good news. Church, we've got to put our trust in the Lord and commit ourselves to him. Our circumstances might change for the worse, but guess what? He won't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You cannot uncrucify Jesus. It's done. And he's won. And because of that, we have the victory. Amen? Paul and Barnabas went on that first missionary journey. They preached. 
They were opposed, but the Spirit empowered them, and they persevered, and souls were saved in the end. They dealt with sorcery in Cyprus. They had opposition in Pisidian Antioch. They met with division in Iconium and pagan worship in Lystra. It's never going to be perfect. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We've just got to remain true to the faith and bring as many as we can along with us before he returns. Let's commit to the Lord and place our trust in him. He will bring us through. We are his children and he will protect us as he sees fit as we entrust ourselves to him here in the Hampton Roads Church. Amen.